Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. This week is sponsored by the Biblical Council <laughs> for Manhood and Womanhood. I don't know if we're allowed to say that. Yeah. And I don't know if they're going to sue us. Yeah. And I don't really care. Great. Uh, this week, uh, in the midst of news about Tropical Storm Harvey and what's going on in Houston and Texas, underneath all of that, uh, about 150 evangelical leaders got together to make a prominent statement about sexuality and their affirmations and denials of gay marriage. Yeah, so they they got together. I think it was led by like John Piper and some other people in the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Thank you for your sponsorship. We um so they they the whole <laughs> statement is made up of affirmation statements and denial statements. I think it's like 14 articles or something and they all say we affirm that men and women are great and we deny that women and women and men and men are great because they are not that is the statement summed up and so it was so interesting because um no one would have assumed that most of these people were affirming but they they felt the need to put in language and make very public and provide a document if anyone else needed a way to take a stand then now they sort of have something to to fall back on and the question for us is like, why is this the document that you want to make as prominent evangelical leaders? Are we making documents and statements about the poor? Are we making documents right. and statements about racism in this world? Did we band together after Charlottesville to say that we wholeheartedly condemn the yeah. KKK and neo-Nazi beliefs? No, but... What we definitely want to make sure mm-hmm. that everyone knows is that gay people should definitely not be married yeah, and that straight people certainly can't. Here's 14 reasons why. And I think what's fascinating is, so when we first started talking about this a couple of days ago, Corey and I, our initial response is like, honestly, that's, it's just dumb. Like it's, we don't even want to really um acknowledge it right like it's just it means nothing to me like what john piper thinks of me has never in my life had any bearing on how i feel but i think what's fascinating is um which i which i kind of love about the statement is that on the website everyone who has signed it you can see it's public so i'm looking down and there are pastors from saddleback church which is right down the street uh professors from biola um Matt Chandler, who speaks out strongly against racism. Some of these people, it's so fascinating to see them on the list. But what's interesting is I think this can seem like a far off idea, but it really impacts and affects sort of a lot of my community. I know like your community, anyone in the evangelical world is now that people who want to tell their nieces and nephews or sons and daughters that they can't come home for Thanksgiving. Now they are sort of energized in a new way because they have this thing. Oh, people are banding together. I'm on the right side. Now we have this document. And so it really, it's it's not, it is both relevant and irrelevant at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, and we, and we wanted to be angry at it. We want to get into a food fight. We want to be us versus them. We want to talk about how your theology is small and doesn't really make sense of the gospel. Uh, because there's a part of me, right, that's just frustrated. That doesn't feel like that this is where history is at. This is not where history is going. Uh, why are we going to continue to make these statements and dig our heels in the ground, even though clearly uh, the trajectory of culture is going another direction? And then I know, right when I say that, and someone's like, well, the church needs to be different than culture. And there's a whole other 
litany of responses and answers that come to that. But at the end of the day, I think what we're really passionate about uh, is this reality of we just want to keep telling a bigger story of God. And so when someone comes out and, and creates a statement like this, uh, in some ways we want to respond to it and affirm with a strong no, this is not what we're about. This is not what we believe Jesus is about. We do not think this is the best story of the Bible or God or kingdom um, and definitely humanity. And so we want to offer some other context of what we think is going on here and, and where we think that we're going. Um, and part of that is just a recognition of, of who this group is, right? This group was founded in what, like 1997? 1987. So the, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood was founded in 1987 and their their purpose at that point was to to ban the evangelical church together to publicly uh, come against and confront feminism. So the big threat to that they felt, the big threat to the church in 1987 was feminism, was this uh, idea of moving away from very distinct roles for men and women um, into a more equal sort of thing felt uh, <laughs> felt very dangerous to the church, which is fascinating, right? So this this group that was founded and their first uh, their first statement that this this group ever put forward was to uh, publicly denounce feminism. Obviously, it's no surprise uh, that they're now sort of publicly denouncing same-sex marriage. I think what's fascinating, what Corey and I um, often talk about is we ask the question, what does this say about God, right? So in in what we do and what we hear and what we read, the question is, what does this say about God? And it's fascinating to imagine, you know, a God where at the end of it all, you say, God, I stood for what... I believed was right when everyone else was loving these people, when everyone else was showing people kindness and compassion, I instead stood for truth at their expense, reward me, right? Is who you can start to think this God is in reading statements like that. And I think that points to a bigger misunderstanding uh, about the story of God, right? That God is that punitive, that God would reward oppression, um, for whatever truth you feel that you are standing on. And the reality of this conversation is that it affects people on the ground level. And so last night uh, we sat around and we had a follow-up conversation on sexuality from a, a sermon and a podcast that we did a few weeks back. And there's a bunch of people sitting around your backyard and, and we're talking about uh, the six passages in the Bible that actually maybe mention or talk about homosexuality. And we're talking about bigger frameworks or perspectives to interpretate scripture from um, these ideas of we're trying to move beyond just idea of what do we think about God, but really to how do we think about God? And that asks bigger questions of us for how we're actually living our lives and is this actually working out for us? But at the end of the day, after we have this conversation with these group of people last night, what's impactful is not the theory that's at 30,000 feet. It's not the the preambles and the articles that are being made here in the Nashville statement or the denial of these things and speaking against it. What's compelling is people telling their stories of trying to come out to their parents, of trying to say, uh, how do I actually make sense of all of this on the ground level in my life when there's a family member who's going to read this Nashville statement and they're going to bring this up in my face at Thanksgiving dinner? 
And so at the end of the day, as irrelevant as I think that the Nashville statement is, mm -hmm. from the reality that the church in the United States of America is dying, we yeah. know that. There's a 5% decrease in the last five years. In Los Angeles County alone, the church has shrunk in 1960 to 2017, over 40%, right? Yeah. Less than 18% of the population in our county goes to church. Uh, and statements like this will only help to decrease those numbers. So everything tells me that this statement doesn't matter until someone sits in your backyard and says, someone's going to use a statement like this against me, and it's going to create broken relationship in my life, and it's going to prevent me from loving, from marrying. In a lot of ways, it's going to create more oppression for me. And again, it begs the question for me of, of why. And so... One of the things that, that we want to talk about is we want to reframe this a little bit and say, is, is there another way to to have these conversations? Because we're all going to have the conversation at the Thanksgiving table in some way, shape, or form uh, yeah. with people in our culture. We all know people on both sides of the table um, who are affirming, who are not affirming, who are passionately digging their heels in. And how do we actually make sense of this? Um, because we can be angry, and we should, rightfully so, and we could be frustrated, um, but there's some broader ways of thinking about it. And so one of the things we talked about is imagine that there's a little circle inside of a bigger circle. And inside this little circle, there's people like this Nashville statement who say, this is the boundary of God within this little circle. And anything that goes outside of this boundary of God is an abomination, is unholy, is not good, is not part of God's design. And they are creating parameters for safety. So there's this um, idea, this, this, this concept called social location. And with social location, it's... It's the reality that the, the analogy that's that's used to best describe it is picture a classroom, right? And in a classroom, everybody is sitting and they're facing forward and they're, they're facing the professor. And so if you're in the fourth row, what do you see? You see three people in front of you and the professor. If you're in the front row, you just see the professor. If you're in the 14th row, you see the 13 rows in front of you and the professor. And it's this idea that privilege uh, puts you closer in the classroom. So the further back you are, you don't only understand what you see, you can also see what the person in the 13th row sees, in the 12th row, in all of the rows in front of you. So the idea of and the power of engaging in community and relationships with people who are different than you, because I guarantee that all of these people who sign this statement and the people who are going to grab on this statement they haven't sat in a backyard like we did last night and listened to how this hurts actual people's lives. I will personally sit with you and I will tell you what me and my wife had to go through to get to where we are. And if that doesn't change you, then there's more going on. If that doesn't at least humanize it. Because you're not defending God. You're offending people. Exactly. And so this idea of social location... Um, the point is to get the people in the front of the classroom to turn around and realize that the classroom was way bigger than they saw. If you're only facing forward, but the farther back you are, the more realities you can understand. And sort of this is the idea when we talk about some of these things is that we have people in their context, these evangelical leaders, they're sitting in the front row. 
They're looking straight ahead and it's small. It's just the professor. So we can understand sort of what they're seeing, but it's hard for them to look back and see what's going on in the rest of the classroom. Does that make sense? Yeah, we've talked about that with consciousness before, yeah. is that in evolving consciousness, you can look backwards, but you cannot look forward into a consciousness that you don't know, right? You can't see what you can't see. Yeah. That's not to say that someone's better than another human being, but there is a reality clearly that some people have a broader perspective and awareness and consciousness mm -hmm. than other people. And so with that type of thinking, we, we believe that sometimes when people become powerful, as evangelical Americans uh, have become powerful over the last 50 years, and they're picking up on the heels of really Western privilege and Protestantism, uh, that sometimes the more powerful you are, the more that you actually create exclusion and that you want to protect the reality in the world that you have. And you don't want anyone to challenge that reality. And so what happens there at times is we begin to use language of not here or not there. Uh, is yeah. God's not here or God's not there, right? We're, we're trying to create boundaries of what God's doing and what God's not doing. And we're both big fans of Richard Rohr. And Richard Rohr actually uses this phrase that I think is really helpful which is instead of saying God's not here, God's not there, is we say that God's everywhere and always. Yes. And that we believe that the scriptures are constantly leading us to that reality. That Jesus lived in a world where conservative religious leaders of his time were constantly saying God's not here and God's not there. So let's not go to those places. And interestingly enough, that's the very places that Jesus spent most of his time. Yeah. It was in the God-forsaken places that God was often showing up. And that's what we believe about this conversation, right? That's the most interesting thing is that maybe the people who have the most formatively and transformatively to tell the evangelical community about experiencing encountering God is maybe the gay community. Right. Won't that be a deep irony yeah. that the transformation of the American church will come at the heels potentially of a group that's been oppressed. Yeah. yeah. And I firmly believe that the spiritual resiliency that you need to hold on to your faith uh, amidst everyone telling you you cannot, right, is is huge. And I think what's, what's fascinating, um, and we've seen this throughout history, this is not unique to 2017, but it is fascinating to see it show up here, uh, but that the people who boast to know the most about the scriptures are repeating the very narratives that the scripture time and time and time again came directly against, right? It's like every time that uh, in scripture you see people were like, okay, we have a good handle on on who God is and where God is. God is on this mountain. God's in this tabernacle. God's in this temple. It was like, no, bigger, bigger, more, more. The book of Acts, right? It's like, okay, okay, just us, right? And it's like, no, them too, them too. Okay, yeah. fine. But now it's just us. And all of scripture is pointing to this bigger idea. And so it's it's wild to see in 2017 this group of people who boast to have the the understanding of a text that directly confronts exactly what they're doing. Yeah, I, I love as you talk about that and the evolution of how the Bible opens up from God is always getting bigger and God is always moving towards a greater inclusivity and really a universality, right? Is that even in Jesus, we're like, okay, right. here's the incarnate one, fully God, fully human, now we've got this thing pinned down. Jesus is like, peace out. I am out of here. Because if I stay, it's always going to be, we got to go find the physical Jesus. Yeah. Instead of it being, no, no, no. Now the spirit is within all of humanity, right? Jesus uses that language. The spirit is already within you. Yeah. You keep looking externally, 
but really this is an internal question. And for us, this comes back to this reality again of when people are creating a statement like the Nashville statement, they're trying to very um, specifically declare God is not here uh, and God is not there. But yeah. we're saying, no, 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 the scriptures are already declaring that God is everywhere and always, right? We, we love Psalm 24, one, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all of its people belong to him or Ephesians for there's just one faith and one baptism and one God uh, of all who's over all and in all and through all things. Those are giant statements about what God's doing. And the scriptures are, are endlessly fascinating and more powerful than ever because they're trying to break out of these power structures. Yeah. They're tra- trying to break out of 14 articles of faith and we were talking about this earlier. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't speak with statements of faith? Right. He didn't speak with uh, dogma and doctrine and articles of, if you just do these things, he told narratives. He took people on a journey. He described God like things. The kingdom of God is like mm-hmm. uh, you discovering this treasure in the middle of a field. The kingdom of God is like this, 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 and this. And why did Jesus do that? Because you can't pin that thing down. Yeah. And now we have a whole set of leaders who are trying to pin the thing down. And so we talked about that in some ways by describing two circles. Mm-hmm. And in, there's a smaller circle that's inside of a bigger circle. And inside the smaller circle is the belief of God is not here or not there. And there's limitations on what God's doing. And if we get outside of this circle... Uh, then we're beyond the realm of God, which is not new thinking, right? Yeah. It happened in the Nashville Statement. It's also happened throughout the history of religion. Uh, in, in ancient Jewish thinking, the closer you got to Jerusalem, and then the closer you got to the temple, and then the closer you got to the Holy of Holies, mm-hmm. and to the actual tabernacle of God, was literally the closer you were getting to Yahweh. And so what happened is like on the Day of Atonement, um, is that they would have a sacrificial goat or lamb, this goat of Azazel, read Leviticus 16 if you're looking for something to do this afternoon. Um, they would send this goat out into the wilderness because the wilderness was farther away from the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the temple in Jerusalem. And so there's this like geographic idea of how we get closer to God or away from God. So that's the smaller circle. But then there's the bigger circle that says, no, 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 it's really everywhere and always that we're talking about. You can constantly try to put God in the smaller circle and create parameters about that. But interestingly enough, the very biblical narrative is a story of God breaking out of that circle and saying, I was always out here the entire time. Now, that thinking is not an effort to create us versus them. It's hopefully a framework to realize that when you're in the smaller circle, you just can't see the bigger circle because you can't see what you can't see. But when you're in the bigger circle, you can see the smaller circle. And in fact, you may understand someone's rationale. You may understand where someone's coming from. Um, You may understand the history or the context that led them there. But here's something else you understand. There's still a bigger circle. Yeah. And I think that's what... It's so fascinating, and and I, we were talking yesterday, and I was like, what's wild is I get it because I was there. That's right. I was in the smaller circle. I grew up in the evangelical church in the 90s. That smaller circle was everything. Uh, God is in 
Kirk Franklin, God is not in en vogue. Like that was very clear to me <laughs> where God was and where God was not. And so I think that's a fascinating uh, reality of, oh, the Nashville State. I, I know that deep in their bones, these guys exclusively um, got together and felt the need to make this statement and truly feel like they're doing the right thing. And that's something you can understand in the bigger circle. I've just seen the thing open up. I have this funny image in my mind. You talk about the, you know, the tabernacle where God was and scripture. It's almost as if like there are these people like panicking, like rapidly trying to re-sew the veil together, you know, which is like the whole statement was like, I'm going to tear this thing down and the glory of God, the, the spirit of God, everything will be everywhere and always. And and that's less comfortable. And that's the harder narrative. And I think that's the more important story. And I feel like I, uh, we were talking this week about the shift from going to, you know, houses of prayer or, you know, temples or whatever around the world. So many of them are open, you know, seven days a week. You want to pray, you want to meet with God, you go into this place, you go into this temple, you go into this place of prayer. And in Western American evangelical church, we have done a really good job of saying this place is open exclusively when there is someone in a position of power who is there to tell you about God. So we've sort of taken away this sort of um, independent experience of you want to seek God here, go go find God. And we've turned it into this place of worship will be open when someone else in power is ready to tell you about God. And I think I, you know, as someone who has come out and been in the evangelical church, um, I now talk to so many people where I feel like all I'm saying is the voice of your pastor is not the voice of God. The voice of your pastor is not the voice of God. And and I think even saying that is kind of a wild statement, that that's something that needs to be repeated so much to remind people that you get to encounter God on your own. God is already with you. God is here go, go into the wilderness, go to Soul Cycle. go see Hamilton, tell me where you meet God. Uh, you don't need to come only when someone can explain it to you and tell you what that means. And I think that's that will be a fascinating switch if we get there that will make things like the Nashville Statement less powerful. Because you want to get in a room and you feel like the 150 you have have the market on the voice of God, and that's just Absolutely untrue. So I think something that's interesting when we talk about something like the Nashville Statement is, and this is similar actually to in our Charlottesville podcast, when you asked me, you said, help me understand, because you can look at Charlottesville and you see these are just 250 extremists, you know, and I was telling you, you know, no, these are our, our doctors and lawyers and, and police officers and, and the influence that, that that has had. I think similarly to the Nashville Statement, Okay, well, these are 150 pastors who just feel this way. No, these are 150 people with extreme influence um, in the U.S. When you look at churches like Saddleback or Matt Chandler's church or these universities or all of, all of these 150 people, you know, now they're representing millions, their, their influence, their reach, um, both on a micro level and a macro level. Like we said, this will impact how people's parents respond to them at Thanksgiving but also the evangelicals are the ones who got our president into the White House, right? So the reach goes both ways. And so while this is a small group of people that I, I like to dismiss and say these are just 
150 misguided irrelevant people somewhere in nashville yes uh while i would like to say that and and i feel that i'm like john piper is of no consequence to my life he still has an influence that reaches far beyond what i am comfortable with in this society and part of that again goes to the phrase and we say it a lot hurt people hurt people and there's this jewish phrase called tikkun olam which is about the repair of the world and there's this idea that until I find healing, then the world can't find healing. And until the world finds healing, then I can't find healing. And so it goes both ways. And so even though I want to say that John Piper and John MacArthur and people who, um, in some ways I'm othering right now, right? I want to own that. Like I'm very frustrated with them. They, they, for me, represent somewhere backwards in time. Um, They are influencers and they represent thoughts and ideals and views of a lot of people. And some of these people are people who are influencing the cabinet of the 45th president of the United States of America. And so is there implications for this? Of course, there's already implications in people that we know being hurt by statements like this at a very personal level. But there's also potential implications of this based on law and legislation and things that might get passed or even things that are brought up to continue to oppress or dehumanize um, people in our culture. And it's, it's frustrating. And so we don't want to minimize in any way when we think of smaller, this is a smaller circle inside of a bigger circle. This might be a smaller circle for what we believe is consciousness, for where we believe God is going, for where we believe the trajectory of time and history and the justice of all things might be. But currently, there's some powerful people in that circle. Yeah. And there's powerful people who are hurting people and more hurt people just means more hurt people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we were talking about this the other day and and I was saying this to to Sammy the other night, my wife. I was like, you know, this the, the Nashville statement means nothing to me, but it also means a lot. Right. We had friends get a lot of shit for. Can I say shit? Yes. Um, OK. For being in our wedding at their jobs or their churches or from their parents. Um, And that's a real personal thing that hit us on a real personal level. And it's because things that we consider irrelevant, a lot of people don't. And so I think that is that's the frustration for me with something like the Nashville statement, because I want to throw it out because it I'm like, whatever, what are they talking about? Meanwhile, you know, our my life has been affected by this, how people are interacting with me and my wife and our future children, our wedding um, any number of things. And so if it's that personal to me and I feel like I don't even care what John Piper thinks of me, you know, but it, but it's still coming home. Well, now we have a bigger problem. Yeah. And we talked about this, how you and Sammy are so fortunate to have parents who yeah. embraced you and loved you and your story is celebrated by them. And for every one of you, there's another 10 people out there, right? Mm-hmm. Whose parents don't understand, who aren't giving them empathy or compassion in this conversation and they feel stuck and they feel forced to make decisions now of do I get to be with my family or do I get to be with a person I love there's all kinds of very practical implications because a statement like this comes out and we don't in any way shape or form want to take that lightly but continue to take a stand against in in a lot of ways something that is a a violent statement right Um, that will bruise and hurt people literally and metaphorically, um, and already is. 
last night we were talking um, and someone asked the question, uh, you know, a, a young woman in the group, and she said, why are people still so interested? Like, why do people care so much? Why are they still trying? And in this James Baldwin quote came to mind, and he says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And so I think we have right now a lot of people who have done a lot of damage to the LGBTQ community. And if they start to pull on that thread or look behind the curtain and realize they may have been misguided and wrong, how painful that experience will be, right? We've all done that. We have all believed something or thought something, got to another level uh, of understanding and re and been embarrassed, right? I'm embarrassed of things I used to say and do in high school. Um, but imagine if you have othered people so strongly, you have denied people rights, you have done these things. Well, now you have to hold on to that because the pain might be too deep. And I think I think we're seeing that right now with the the older evangelical generation they're digging their heels so deep in the ground and part of me feels like the reason is they can't fathom the implications if they were to realize they might have been wrong all along what does that mean for how they've treated people their children their nieces their nephews anyone which is interesting in a lot of ways because it's the story of the crucifixion where you have a bunch of people who are scapegoating jesus uh, and instead of looking at their own pain and reality, they create more pain and reality by placing it on somebody else. And that's where the Jesus narrative is, is really important because it's not that Jesus goes to a cross to take all the pain away from us, but Jesus goes to the cross so that we have to confront the pain and the wounds and the suffering that we are experiencing and that we are creating in the world. Yeah. And so Jesus says, other me, so that you can see a way through this thing, mm -hmm. so that we stop othering other people. Yeah. Uh, let the pain and the violence and the wounds and the suffering end here. Um, because we have to go through these things in order to find resurrection, in order to find life, in order to find a new birth or renewal or whatever words it is that we're looking for. I think that quote's really powerful because we don't want to go through the pain. We don't want to explore the realities that we make these statements because we'd rather other somebody else than confront the realities of our own bigotry, our own hate, our own pain, our own wounds, because it's always easier to point the finger than to deal with the man in the mirror. Yeah. And if, if I, if you, if anyone has spent their life drawing lines in the sand and keeping people uh, from getting across those lines, well, then now when the story gets bigger and you realize, oh, those lines weren't necessary, oh, that's too painful to deal with, so I will just keep drawing these lines regardless of if I even believe in them or not. <laughs> I, I didn't think about this until you just said it, but lines in the sand, right? Literally the story of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. Yeah. All these people are yes. coming forward to make a declarative 14-article statement yes. about a woman who was caught in the act of sleeping with a married man in which the tradition is to stone her and kill her. And Jesus draws a line in the sand yeah. and says, if you're without sin or if you're without wounds or pain or suffering, 
feel free to toss that first stone. Instead, he's saying, let's stop drawing lines in the sand because it kills all of us. Right, and that's the invitation and the irony of this story. The invitation is, is that God is everywhere and always. The irony of it is, is that evangelicalism comes from the Protestant Reformation over time. And the Protestant Reformation was about saying no to the Pope, about accumulating power. And the church at the time being a very specific way to encounter God and, and people saying, no, that's not true. We can all encounter God through the scriptures. And now instead of having one Pope, we have a hundred thousand little mini popes, yeah. right. Who say, uh, who've moved away from one institution or structure and now say, Oh, it's the way that I interpret scripture is the correct way. And if you don't do this thing, um, then we're going to create articles of faith or statements against w- what you believe about the things that we affirm or the things that we deny. And you know what? Great. Because there's a deep irony there and there's some lament and some critique and uh, probably some prophetic word that needs to take place. And it's, I think, taking place within the the American church, within the evangelical church at the moment. But what we're interested in is an invitation, right? And the invitation is to a bigger story of God. The invitation is to the reality that the whole thing's a temple. Um, And that there are times that we need to do podcasts and say, huh, why was this the thing that you wanted to make a declarative statement about? I remember Rob Bell telling a story one time about when Love Wins came out that uh, this church that he had originally come from wrote this like eight-page treatise on why you shouldn't read the book. Mm -hmm. And a line that he says is, did you write the same thing about Mein Kampf? Like, Love Wins was the book that you decided to do this about amidst all of the other things that are taking place on planet Earth right now. What is so terrifying? What is so scary? What is the thing that you think that you need to dig your heels in about this reality? And partly we ask that is because in history, we see that in a lot of ways, the conservative religious church has always done this Mm -hmm. from the time of Jesus before that, right? The prophets are always speaking out against really the church of the day and saying, what are you doing? Right. You've become so passionate about preserving the temple that you've missed caring for the poor and the widow and the alien. Um, We we talk sometimes about Galileo that (laughs) 500 years ago, the church is telling Galileo, no, you are wrong. The, Sun is not the center of the solar system. And you cannot be telling people this because the Bible declares that the earth is the center of the solar system. And guess what? That train left the station and it never went back. Yeah. And trains have been leaving the station for a long time when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to slavery, mm-hmm. when it comes to the LGBTQ conversation. And you can continue to make declarative statements, but the train's left the station and it's never coming back. Yeah. So we can continue sitting around and saying no to that, which we will. Mm-hmm. But we also want to invite you into a bigger reality and into bigger circles and into the hope that God's going to surprise all of us along the way. Yeah. And I think the 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 bigger truth, and this is what we talk a lot about at New Abbey, is if you can get God out of that little circle... It might change the way you act with the LGBTQ community, yes, but it will also change your life. It will change the way you interact with this world, with this 
life, with your city, with your spouse. This is what will change how you encounter God day to day. And that's the interesting and important conversation I want to be a part of. I don't want to sit and go through 14 articles of where you affirm and deny something, and then I write 15 articles of what I affirm and deny. I want to be a part of broadening the story of God for the purpose of us getting to experience God more and in a more meaningful way. Galileo eventually was killed because, you know, of what he thought. And we all look back and we were like, oh, are bad, right? Again, all of these things are are moving and and people are are evolving in their understanding and their growth. And I think the beauty in that is we are understanding more of God along the way. I think there's there's something small about, to me, there's something small about an understanding of God that is afraid, right? Don't look behind that curtain. Don't don't turn over that rock. It might tell you something you don't want to know. When if it's everywhere and always, I'll look behind all the curtains. I'll turn over all the rocks, and I am certain I will only understand more of who this good God is and what uh, this God has has created and and how we interact with that. And so I think that's, at the end of the day, there is just a lack of of freedom that makes my heart sad. Yeah, because at the end of the day, again, it's not what you think about God, but how you think about God. And so the questions that we want to know is, how is this actually working out for you? If you believe in a God that's smaller and is in the corner of fear and that we need to constantly make these statements, how is that working out for your life? How is that working out to making the world a better place? And interestingly enough, do you have enough empathy to realize how is this fear-based narrative about God working out towards the people that I'm having Thanksgiving with? When I'm telling them these stories, when I'm um, perpetuating this narrative and not listening well to where they're at. What is that doing to their life? And I want to make a little shout out to a journalist in the Chicago yes. Tribune who wrote a really great article that I recommend that, that people go read. And he called it the Chicago Statement. And his name is Rex Hupke. And he says this, and I think it's a great idea of how's this working out um, and how people are actually respond. real people who don't live in that bubble, mm-hmm. right, are responding to something like this. It says, I believe we do a disservice to God if we ignore that LGBT youth are three times more likely to consider suicide than straight teens, and that suicide rate in the transgender community has been found to be as much as 10 times the national average. I think it's unconscionable for anyone to not see the psychological harm that bigotry disguised as religious doctrine does to LGBT youth and adults. I don't think anyone who has ever met a gay teenager kicked out of his house because of who he loves, left homeless and alone, told he no longer belongs, could look at the words in the Nashville statement and say, this is what God wants. This is what Jesus would want us to do. It isn't. It's not love. It's quite the opposite. And I don't care if in the eyes of some that disqualifies me from belonging to a religious group or from a staking a claim to eventual salvation. Because if making other humans feel less human is a requirement for entry into heaven, I think I'll keep my soul with me buried in the dirt. Yep. Grace and peace.